Hello and welcome to Girl Gotta Hike the Podcast, episode 28. I'm your host, Melissa Goodwin, outdoor guide, photographer, and founder of Girl Gotta Hike. This podcast features interviews with adventurous women, plus trail tips and hiking advice for those who want to disconnect from the daily grind. Today's episode is part two of my Mount Everest Base Camp travelogue from May of 2018. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I highly recommend starting there so you can catch up on the journey so far as I travel from Kathmandu to Namche Bazaar with a group of five fellow New York City-based photographers. This episode covers day eight through 18 as we continue up and across the Sagarmatha National Forest, all the way to base camp and back down, stopping in different villages and tea houses along the way. If you've already listened to episode one, thank you so much. I've gotten some lovely feedback about the format and I'm excited to share the conclusion with you today. And if you happened to hear it back when it was first released and have been eagerly awaiting this follow-up, I sincerely thank you for your patience. Podcasting has been a fun and creative way for me to share outdoor adventures and stories with you, but it's just one part of my greater Girl Got Hike universe. While I fully intended to pop out this second installment the following week, I found myself both booked up for the foreseeable future with guided trips and photo gigs, and bogged down with the boring behind-the-scenes business stuff that eats away at my best intentions. While six or seven months may have slipped by between that last recording and this one, the sentiment remains the same. I'm so stoked that you've tuned in to head back to the hills with me and hear about the second half of this base camp adventure. Stay tuned after the episode to learn about how you can adventure, near or far, with Girl Gotta Hike. Oh, and once again, please excuse any mispronunciations I may have made as it's now been five and a half years since I've visited Nepal. Regular Girl Gotta Hike the Podcast listeners have already learned how much I appreciate the lightweight stylings of Gossamer Gear's backpacks while out on trail, but their 23-liter Vagabond Jet is a bit like a unicorn kind of pack in that it'll also work for city life. Its integrated laptop and tablet sleeve protects your tech while riding the rails during the week, and its top carry grab handles allow you to keep a good hold on your gear while on a crowded subway car. Should your work take you further afield, it'll also stow away easily under an airplane seat in front of you. When the weekend hits and the trail is calling, just ditch the tablet and you're good to go. Like most other packs in the Gossamer Gear lineup, the Vagabond features a large exterior mesh pocket on the front, which is perfect for stowing away extra layers, stretchy water bottle-sized pockets on the sides, and shoulder strap pockets, perfect for keeping that phone handy for selfies. If you're planning a long day hike with a lot of snacks, or have a hefty commute and don't want your shoulders to bear the brunt of the weight, then don't worry, it even integrates with Gossamer Gear's Fast Belt Hip Belts. For storage-impaired New Yorkers like me, the Vagabond Jet is that sweet and stylish pack that actually works for both trail and town. As a special treat, Girl Gotta Hike the podcast listeners can use the code Girl Gotta Hike Gossamer to get 15% off your first purchase at GossamerGear.com. That's Girl Gotta Hike Gossamer, and be sure to follow the link in the show notes to find out more about the Vagabond Jet and all of Gossamer Gear's other offerings. Hey there, hikers. In the summer of 2023, I embarked on my first ever solo through hike on the 486-mile Colorado Trail. 
In the lead up to my departure, I was carefully working through my gear list, making calculated decisions about what pieces I needed to have out there for safety, what I wanted to have for comfort, and what I could comfortably live without in order to save weight and give my lungs a fighting chance to be living above 10,000 feet for a few weeks. Know what never got cut from my resupply boxes? My daily dose of resilience. Made with reverence, sustainably sourced, and minimally processed, Resilience Turmeric Elixir from Anjali's Cup was the perfect nightcap to help me recover from many a 20-plus mile day on trail. Most nights I'd get to camp, set up my tent, down as many calories as I could for dinner, then mix up a warm cup of the delicious golden drink mix with ginger and lemon to enjoy for dessert, alongside a few cookies, of course. And if I needed an extra boost on the really long days, I'd pour a packet in my water bottle, shake it up, and keep on adding up the miles. Turmeric is a powerful anti-inflammatory, and studies have shown that it helps to ease joint and muscle pain, improve flexibility, and is packed with antibacterial properties, all the things I needed out on trail. The benefits of toting some golden turmeric goodness in my pack far outweighed the weight. Founder, fellow female small business owner, and outdoors enthusiast Anjali Bargava is now offering Girl Gotta Hike hikers and podcast listeners 10% off at anjaliscup.com when you enter the code GIRLGOTTAHIKE10 at checkout. Packets of resilience come in 10 and 25 count boxes, as well as larger sized containers to scoop from too. When you're prepping your pack for your next adventure, consider tossing in a packet or two of resilience turmeric elixir from Anjali's Cup. It's like a hug in your cup, and your achy knees will thank you too. Head over to Anjali's Cup, that's A-N-J-A-L-I-S, cup.com and enter the code girlgottahike10 at checkout for 10% off. Please note this is a new code as of December 2023 and replaces any previous offerings. Day 8, May 6th, 2018. Namche Bazaar to Deboche. 7.5 miles hiking. Elevation 12,464 feet. After breakfast, we walk up and out of Namche. When we round the bend, we begin to see views of Everest ahead and the Dude Koshi Valley below. Our trail this morning is a mix of open views, forested trail, and lovely rhododendron tunnels. Rhododendron is the national flower of Nepal, and they are just coming into bloom this time of year. The smells of the flowers and the pine trees are a much welcome change from the dust-ups of the crushed donkey and yak dung underfoot. Partway up to lunch, before I see a person, I see a large backpack covered in patches. With that pack and by observing her gait, I know immediately that she's a thru-hiker. I start chatting with her and sure enough, Twisted Sister from Roanoke, Virginia, has hiked the Appalachian Trail too. We chat for a bit about the AT, what years we hiked it, and how much we still love the AT community. Twisted Sister has done work in wilderness medicine and is currently working on a study of thru-hikers. I tell her I want to interview her for my site, and I give her a Girl Gotta Hike sticker. But, in my breathlessness of hiking uphill, I forget to get her contact info and also to take her photo. So, part of my goals for this trip are to take more photos of people and not just gorgeous landscapes. I have done okay so far, but I'm kicking myself for a few instances like these that I either forgot about or passed up because I was tired. After lunch, we head uphill some more toward Tangboche. The Tangboche Monastery is there, and it is somewhat a tradition for trekkers and climbers to get a blessing from the monks for continued health and safety in the mountains. For a small fee, of course. Unfortunately, they don't keep regular hours, and the local llama isn't in, so we move on to have tea and snacks at the nearby tea house. 
There we meet up with Alok, another Nepali guide who freelances with Himalayan holidays, and who was originally supposed to be our main guide for this trek. Unfortunately, when it was time for us to take off to Lukla, he was stuck due to bad weather in Upper Mustang, Nepal, where none of the flights could get out. He has brought with him his American friend, a part-time expat and global entrepreneur named Alex from Alabama, who has a bit of time to kill and wanted to see Everest. So now we are a group of seven hikers, three guides, and three porters. More than we need, but the more the merrier, I think. We leave the tea house and head downhill for about 15 minutes to the village of Deboche, where our lodging for the night is, at a two-story tea house called Rivendell. After changing into our nighttime and dry clothes, we gather in the dining room where they've got the stove pumping. It is warm, and I have spaghetti with tomato sauce and tuna for dinner. The proteins up here, outside of lentils, consist of canned tuna, chicken, if they can get it, and eggs. We've been warned off the yak meat as it's more bone and gristle than anything else. Danny, William, and I get out the cards, but we can't convince anyone else to play euchre with us. So just the three of us play, and Danny has a massive streak of beginner's luck. We head to bed warm and still full from dinner. I attempt to write as I am dazed behind on the blog, but soon enough my phone drops from my hands and I give in to some well-deserved sleep. Day 9, May 7th, 2018. Deboche to 5.7 miles hiking, elevation 13,840 feet. After breakfast and goodbyes at Rivendell, we make our way up, around, and along the mountainside to the town of Pangboche, where we stop in to try again at a Buddhist blessing. Just our luck, the llama is in. Oh wait, no? He's out getting lunch. We order tea outside and rest in the sunshine while we wait for his return. Many Buddhist temples partially collapsed during the 2015 earthquake, and this one is no exception. The monks are in the process of renovations, but work is slow due to both being so high in the mountains and the dependence on donations for repairs. We purchase white scarves at the gift shop, and a lock shows us how to fold them in the traditional way. When it is our turn, we present them with both hands to the seated llama, with our additional 100 rupee donation neatly folded on top, and each in turn receive a blessing from him. We kneel beside him as he pours holy water in our open palms, which we are either supposed to drink or splash on our faces, I can't quite tell, then bow our heads as he ties a yellow and red necklace around our necks, places the scarves around us, and wishes us good fortune along the rest of our journey. The ceremony at this temple is done in a simple room, full of colorful statues of deities, candles, and incense. I feel again like I should have done more research on the customs and traditions of the Buddhist and Nepalese people prior to my arrival, but I am learning as I go. The afternoon's hike is a short one, but we gain a lot in terms of elevation. Above 10,000 feet, the best way to prevent AMS, acute mountain sickness, is to keep elevation gain limited to around 1,500 feet per day. That helps ensure that our bodies will have time to catch up to the lack of oxygen density. We rise above the tree line, and the views of snow-capped peaks explode in front of us. Until the late afternoon clouds roll in, that is. We move along a bit quicker during our last hour or so until we reach Farishay and our home for the night, the Edelweiss. The air temps have gotten colder and our rooms aren't heated in the tea houses we stay at, so the bulk of us spend the late afternoon and evening in the dining room, huddled at times near and other times farther away from the heating stove in the middle of the room, writing, reading, and chatting. 
I watch as the proprietors fill the stove with dried yak dung for heat. It is the main source of heating fuel as there is no wood available now that we are above treeline. Surprisingly, it doesn't smell bad. Shari, the friendliest of our team, starts chatting it up with some fellow guests, including Roman Romancini from Brazil, who is on an Everest summit attempt, but just down in lower elevations for the night to relax and rest his body. He's with two friends, Rafael Duarte, a Brazilian photographer and director who is making a documentary of Roman's story, and a Frenchman, whose name I can't remember, but who will be summiting with Roman. I can't help but eavesdrop on the conversation because, one, it is an incredibly fascinating story of trial and redemption, and two, Roman is the definition of strength and fitness, not to mention easy on the eyes. Even William and Danny talk about how they'd like to look like him. After dinner, I find myself near the stove again, joining in on the Everest Q&A. Shari and I ask Roman if it's hard to be away from his family for so long. A typical summit attempt will take close to two months. While he has loads of adventures behind him, he said this trip was especially tough because his son turned 11 while he has been away and is itching for his dad to get home. Roman seems humbled by the mountain and all of the people who have helped get him here, which, by all accounts, is the approach one should take when visiting the roof of the world. Day 10, May 8th, 2018. 3.8 miles. Farishé acclimatization day. Elevation, 13,840 feet, up to 14,600 feet, and back. Shari and I awake in our sleeping bags to the sounds of a helicopter just a few hundred yards from our window. There goes Roman, we sigh, and then giggle like the total fangirls we have become. To attempt an Everest summit takes a lot of guts, determination, and the ability to detach oneself from the very distinct possibility of death or having to turn back, mere meters from the top, for lack of time. Intriguing, but not sure it's something I would like to try, I think. We head upstairs for a leisurely 8 a.m. breakfast as we are staying in Farishade to do another acclimatization hike before continuing onward tomorrow. To our surprise, Roman and Raphael are still here. This morning's helicopters have all been heading down the mountain, and theirs is due to arrive soon. All of us photographers compare mirrorless camera notes with Raphael about the benefits of Sony versus Fuji and what else we all like to shoot when we are not in the Himalayas. He's very excited to be in the company of people who understand his chosen craft. After breakfast, we say our final goodbyes to R&R and take off with our group to head uphill. We will hike as far as we feel comfortable to on the hill to the right side of town. It is a bit slow going as we make our way, everyone taking photos of the surrounding mountains and navigating around other groups of trekkers who are also doing acclimatization hikes today. Plus, of course, we're a bit out of breath. Except for Alex. He breaks out into a rendition of Garth Brooks's Friends in Low Places while sitting on a rock and waiting for the rest of our group to catch up. Danny and I start laughing, and then Alex all but forbids us from filming him. There's no official destination for today's hike, just up in elevation, and I'd like to go farther, but the clouds are starting to thicken over the mountains above us, and it seems like our guides want us to get back down before we get stuck in the impending winds. Either that, or they lack faith in our group's overall abilities to go much further. The pace of a trek like this is slower than all of my previous backpacking trips, and so I'm feeling a little antsy, like I want to stretch my legs more and keep moving. At the same time, I don't know how my body will respond to the higher elevations if I don't allow myself enough rest. So down we go back to Farishay and the promise of a hot lunch at the Edelweiss. 
Every day at 3 in the afternoon, the Himalayan Rescue Association gives a talk at their Farishay aid post about altitude and all of the signs and symptoms to look out for when traveling to heights such as these. Shari, Caddy, Heather, and I head over there after lunch. William, who's attended the talk on his previous visits, decides to sit this one out, and Danny opts for a nap instead. Outside of the aid post is a beautiful, albeit stark, reminder of the mortal dangers of high-altitude climbing. The Everest Memorial is a cone-shaped stainless steel sculpture, divided down the middle into two halves, with the names, dates, and nationalities of those who have died on Everest etched into nameplates in the space between. According to a description on the outside of the sculpture, rocks from the surrounding mountains fill the interior framework, while the surface itself is, quote, not trying to compete with the mountains, but instead reflect them. Today's talk is being given by Simon Randfield, a general practitioner from Scotland. The HRA was established in 1973 in an effort to reduce the amount of casualties in the Himalayas, as the number of foreign and local truckers to high altitude were increasing. By teaching people about and treating people with acute mountain sickness, the HRA has saved countless lives over the years. Simon teaches us about what we should expect to feel as we continue up in elevation and what signs to look out for. The Himalayan Rescue Association is a nonprofit which relies primarily on financial and supply donations. Simon and the other Western doctors who work with the HRA are all volunteers. During the two trekking seasons, aid stations in Farishay, on the way to Everest Base Camp, and Manang, in the Annapurna region, provide emergency evacuation services and medical assistance to trekkers and mountain expedition teams. They also provide free or inexpensive medical services to the local Nepali communities. This year is the second time, and 20th anniversary, that Simon and his wife Helen have volunteered with the HRA. For the last six weeks, they have been stationed here in Farishay with a third foreign doctor, Carlo Canepa, a New York native, and with whom we talk excitedly with about our favorite pizza spots. A fourth doctor, local Nepali Tan Shwar, is spending his seventh season here with the HRA. With just two weeks to go in the spring trekking season, they've already treated hundreds of trekkers. They are a warm and welcoming group, and in meeting them, my faith in humanity and belief in our human capacity for generosity is restored. Either that, or it's the lack of oxygen that is making me feel so overclimped. Back at the Edelweiss, we enjoy our third meal of the day and sit around the stove once again, keeping warm and chatting away with some fellow trekkers from all over the world. A large group of Indians, many now living in the Netherlands, are on their way down from base camp and are celebrating with beers and kukri, a Nepali rum that William has warned us off of, at least until we're on the descent. Despite all the warnings from the HRA this afternoon about the effects of drinking at altitude, I do accept a splash into my hot tea when offered, and dang, it feels nice. But just the one splash, we are going up in the morning after all. Day 11, May 9th, 2018. 4.4 miles, Farishay to Lobuche. Elevation, 16,110 feet. We awake to gorgeous snow-covered ground outside of our window. Nice that it came in the night and not on us though I'd gladly take walking in snow over walking in rain any day. When I get upstairs for breakfast, I find out that lightning took out the internet tower in the middle of the night. Ha! I stayed up late last night, tucked into my sleeping bag, writing on my phone in an attempt to catch up on the blog, and now I won't be able to post. So goes it. Nature rules the roost in these parts, and anyway, I'm used to being disconnected when I go backpacking. 
It's the staying in beds and taking meals and tea breaks inside that have started to spoil my expectations. After another breakfast of Tibetan bread with honey and a side of hard-boiled eggs, my current fave, we head outside onto snow-covered paths and make our way through the wide valley ahead. Just beyond the edge of town, amongst the snow-covered rock walls, knacks, female yaks, are grazing with their babies, and it is just about the most precious thing any of us have ever seen. William and our guides have to all but tear us away from photographing these cutie pie creatures. As we walk, we are all feeling more winded, and some of our group begins to fall behind. The air is ever getting thinner, and it seems like the elevation is starting to hit Heather the worst. Her steps have slowed, but Alex, like the southern gentleman that he is, has shouldered her pack on top of his own. After carefully crossing another Gatorade Glacier ice-colored stream, this one without a bridge, we stop for lunch at what feels like a high-altitude Nepali version of a European plaza. Tables for the few surrounding restaurants are all grouped together outside in one central location, and we sit amongst other teams of trekkers and eavesdrop with excitement to those who are on their way back from base camp. The sun is bright and high, and the snow that we were so enamored with just a few hours ago has almost completely melted already. Shortly after lunch, we come up over a rise, and the path takes us straight through the middle of a memorial site. Tombstones of fallen climbers wrapped in prayer flags around us, some names recognizable from the infamous 1996 disaster that was the focus of John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, others from more recent summit attempts, and many more whose nameplates have faded or fallen off long ago. It is another reminder, like the talk yesterday at the Rescue Association, that this trek is not just a pretty walk in the park with baby yaks and beautiful mountains, but something much more sacred. Our afternoon walk is short into Lobuche, and though it doesn't feel like it to me, we've gained nearly 2,200 feet since leaving Farishay. We arrive at our teahouse destination mid-afternoon and find the common room fairly empty of other trekkers, but completely covered in posters, world flags, and Mount Everest memorabilia. With a few hours to go before the sun sets and we can eat again, some of us hang in the common room, drinking tea and sharing stories, while others retire to their rooms to take naps. Even inside the tea house, it's noticeably colder, above 16,000 feet, and I lounge on the benches, wrapped snug in my sleeping quilt, not quite able to focus on any particular task, like catching up on the blog or organizing my snacks for tomorrow, but just enjoying being in the presence of others. I've got way too much FOMO to give into a nap, even though I know I could really use one. Eventually, afternoon turns to evening, and it's dinner time once again. Wahoo! Most of our group is feeling lethargic, but it's still fun to gather while we eat. Soup is tonight's most popular dish, anything to help keep us warm. The proprietors have lit the stove, but the smell of this one is starting to bother me. It's primarily kerosene heat now as we are high above treeline and without wood for fuel, but unfortunately the ventilation here is lacking. Despite feeling like I'm breathing in car exhaust, I slide closer to the stove after dinner as I just can't seem to get warm. Shari and I watch as Danny and Alex bond over music videos on their phone. She is thrilled that through this power of happenstance, two strangers traveling along from completely different places have found some commonality, and her observations make me smile. Like, seriously, it's not every day that a guy from the Bronx and another from Birmingham end up chatting together on their way to Mount Everest. At some point, I can't keep my eyes open anymore, and knowing what a big day we have tomorrow, I head down the hall to our room to catch some Z's. It's super cold back here, and I put on a few more layers before tucking in for the night. 
Are you thinking of taking your adventuring to the next level, but not sure what you should consider when shouldering a pack and heading for the hills? If you're looking for some personalized guidance on an upcoming solo or small group adventure, I can help keep those butterflies at bay by chatting with you on a one-hour coaching call. Whether you're heading out for a few days, a few weeks, or even a few months, talking one-on-one with someone who's been there before offers invaluable advice to help you organize your trek and your thoughts ahead of hitting the trail. Our conversation will be catered to meet your specific needs, but topics of discussion could include gear selection, meal prep, navigating your way to and from trail, safety concerns, weather considerations, and or some of the physical and mental health challenges that may surface when heading up and away on an outdoor journey. Advanced preparation is key to completing your outdoor goals, and Girl Gotta Hike is available to help get you there. Want to chat? Just head over to the store page on girlgottahike.com to book your one-hour coaching call with me, Melissa Click Goodwin. Have a lot of concerns you want to cover? You can snag 15% off when you purchase three or more sessions by using the code EXTRAHELP at checkout. You can set up your coaching calls over on the store page at girlgottahike.com. Or better yet, just follow the link in the show notes. Day 12, May 10th, 2018, 9.5 miles, Lobouche to base camp and back to Gorakshep. Elevation, 17,598 feet. I wake up tired and cold. It's hard to get deep sleep at this high of an elevation, and I'm starting to notice. My body is working hard in the night, not only to keep me warm, but also to build more red blood cells to help circulate oxygen faster. It's truly amazing how the body can adapt like this, but the lack of adequate rest is catching up. Like everyone else, I've started coughing and sniffling. Not sure if it's just a symptom of dry air and breathing in dusty trail dirt, or if I'm actually coming down with something. But I push all those thoughts aside because today is the day we've been waiting for. Today we're going to reach base camp. Wahoo! Mind over matter, baby. Or for me, anyway. Out in the dining room, we learn that Heather's turning back. Even though she has a successful Kilimanjaro summit under her belt, on this trip, the elevation is not agreeing with her body. She had a rough go of it yesterday, and unfortunately, she's not feeling better today. The safest option is for her to descend. Thankfully, we have an overabundance of guides and porters, so Alok and one of the boys will be heading back to Namche Bazaar with her. If her conditions don't improve with descent, there's always the option to chop her out to a hospital in Kathmandu. We wish her good health and Godspeed. Soon enough, we're back on the trail, heading up to our last town of the trip, Gorakshep. Gorakshep is really just a collection of a few buildings, more like an outpost than a true town, but a popular one at that. It's the last stop before reaching Everest, Kalapatar, and a smattering of other tallest mountains in the world. From here on out, there are no more permanent structures or amenities. And because so many folks are coming in and going out from here, we're allowed reservations for one night only. We warm up with an early lunch in the same tea house we'll be sleeping at later. It's the most stripped down of the accommodations that we've stayed at, but completely understandable considering our elevation and the sheer remoteness of the joint. Since it's only one of a handful of options here, there's no need for them to fluff it up for tourists. The fact that it's even here is enough. We haven't been inside quite long enough for me to shake my chill before it's time to rearrange gear and get going again. We have only a few hours to get up to and back from base camp for any hope of seeing it without cloud cover. 
As we ready our water supply for the afternoon, we find out that the nearby river, the water source for this tea house, is running so low this late in the season that we'll have to buy liters of bottled water to drink instead of filtering from the tap. I'm not even sure that there is a tap, to be honest, and considering the sewage system, or lack thereof in these parts, I'm all good with shelling out $5 a bottle if it means not getting sick. We head out of Gorkshep, round a bend, and get our first close-up views of the Kumbu Icefall. This collection of centuries-old frozen water fills the valley between Everest and the Lhotse-Nupse Ridge, and it's absolutely beautiful with its shades of turquoise and undulating texture. Though the size of the glacier and the icefall shift a bit from season to season, from what we've heard, it has receded noticeably over the last number of years. Nobody here questions whether or not climate change is real. Global warming is affecting their daily lives. We begin to see pops of yellow amongst all of the gray and white that make up the snow and the rocks around us. These colorful domed tents are home for the season for those who are planning their summit attempts, and for all of the porters, doctors, guides, and Sherpas who assist in facilitating those summit dreams. This is literally the seasonal camp at the base of Mount Everest, where climbers like Roman Romancini live for four to six weeks, getting themselves acclimated to the lack of oxygen in the air and training daily for the long push to the top. From what we learned the other night, it will still take seven days of climbing to reach the summit, an unbelievable 11,431 feet higher than base camp. Two hours after leaving Gorakshep, we reach the center of tourist base camp to find a big rock draped in loads of prayer flags and fellow trekking groups smiling and celebrating. The summit camps are stationed a bit further ahead, and day hikers are asked politely to stick to the middle. Everyone is lining up to take their group photos and to take in the sights. The sky, which was swirling with gray clouds about an hour ago, has cleared a bit allowing for some slices of blue to peek through and for us to take in some lovely warmth from the sun. Already, unbelievably, after eight days of hiking, we're here. I get out my mini tripod and set my camera to self-timer in order to capture our entire ragtag group of New Yorkers, Nepalis, and one Alabaman. William and Danny bust out a Puerto Rican flag for their photo and joke that they're the only New Yorkans on Everest, or maybe even in all of Nepal. But really, it's just amazing to see all of the people from different nations proudly sporting some hometown pride on this site. After a brief 30 minutes of taking photos and craning our necks for a glimpse of what lies above, it's already time to head back. Our guides are aware of what the clouds look like before the winds pick up, and this height of 17,598 feet above sea level is taking its toll on our breathing. We leave feeling happy, feeling accomplished, but somewhat reluctantly and well before we can begin to contemplate all of this significance. Day 13, May 11th, 2018. 9.5 miles, Gorakshep to Pangboche. 11 miles hiked, elevation 13,074 feet. I wake up wondering if I dreamed that we were at base camp yesterday. Did it really happen? Is it time to turn around and go back already? I want more time here. Time at least for this experience to sink in a bit. But alas, there's a flight back to Kathmandu to catch, which is still a few days walk away, so we must stay on schedule. Plus, there's literally no more room at the inn. Even if we had time to explore more, this place has got to get ready to accommodate the new crop of truckers coming in today. This urge to stick around is most certainly being fueled by our decision last night to forego climbing Kalapatar this morning, 
The original plan was to get up at 3 a.m. and climb the couple of miles to the top to watch the sun rise over Everest before breakfast. Since you can't actually see the summit of Everest from base camp, getting to the top of nearby Kalapatar is the best way to gain some perspective on these amazing mountains that we've been meandering through the foothills of. But with predictions of an overnight storm, unseasonably low temps, which none of us have the right clothes for, and the fact that at least two of us are coming down with the kumbu cough, we figured it best to hunker down inside and rest up before the long journey back downhill today. I know it was the right decision, but dang, that summit fever is strong. Last night after dinner, I plunked down in the chair that was closest to the heater, wrapped myself up in my sleeping quilt, cupped my hands around a mug of hot tea, and I still felt chilled. I'm still trying to will it away, but that inability to keep warm is clearly a sign that I'm coming down with something. According to the chatter in the dining room this morning, it got all the way down to 9 degrees Fahrenheit overnight, right about the time we would have been stepping out the door. So with my waning health and the low temps, I know it in my brain that not going up was the most sane and safe thing to do, but my heart still aches for it. I know these mountains will continue to be here, though, so this unfinished business is all the more reason to come back here one day. This thought brings me some comfort. As we prepare to make our exit from Gorakshep, Alex takes his leave from us. He's been able to procure a spot on a helicopter heading from here to Namche Bazaar. Or to Lukla? I'm not sure which. Either way, he'll make it back to Kathmandu days before we do. He was an unexpected but welcome addition to our crew, and his sudden departure seems perfectly fitting. Around 9 a.m., we head downhill and away from Gorakshep, and before long start crossing paths with the next group of base camp trekkers. The sun is bright and the scenery is pretty, but the rest of the morning feels like a blur. We pass back through Lobache and see the poorly ventilated tea house from two nights back, recross the tombstone monuments of fallen climbers, which make me feel more grateful and grounded than ever, and hop over the Gatorade-colored glacial streams and take our lunch break back in Farishay at our old home away from home, the Edelweiss. After lunch, it's like the last few days on quadruple speed rewind. We pass a few yak trains and many trailside monuments carved by monks. I remember thinking that if I didn't get a photo on the way up, I'd certainly remember to get it on the way down. But of course, everything looks a bit different coming from this direction. The sky gets gray in the late afternoon, and we all stop less to take photos, instead focusing more on our feet as we head down, down, down to Pengboche. We didn't stop here on the way up, but it, like many of the more populated towns, is a lovely collection of stone buildings on a flattish portion of a mountainside. I am so in love with all of the stepped potato fields and grazing areas. All these walls, all these buildings with their rocks cut and fitted by hand. It's amazing how my life in New York City is so lost to that type of handcraft. Later I learned that this town is considered home base for anyone heading to Amadablam, a very prominent and popular mountain that has been in our sights for much of the last few days. Our tea house for the night, the Highland Sherpa Resort, features many beautiful photos of Amadablam and its surrounding sister mountains. The common area here is my favorite of the whole trek, I think. It's full of warm wood and lots of places to sit. It's wrapped in windows and has shelves full of books to read and cases full of mountaineering memorabilia. And because it's perched on the side of a hill and high above the land around us, we have unobstructed views in three directions— Oh, I wish I wasn't so tired. I'd like to take some photos to match how it makes me feel. We're all tired tonight. It's been our longest hiking day so far. Coming down in elevation, we don't have to worry about stopping early to acclimatize. 
so we just continued as far as made sense to set us up for tomorrow. Our feet may be beat, but we're content, and we sit around a big table, laughing and sharing kukri and hot water. Just the thing to combat my progressing cough, I think. Or at least something to ease my suffering and help me to sleep more soundly. Day 14, May 12th, 2018. Pengboche to Namche Bazaar. 9.3 miles hiking. Elevation 11,300 feet. From here on out, my daily note-taking and journaling seems to have ceased. What I recall, though, is that it felt warmer and sunnier the lower we went. I even felt speedy, Danny and I pulling ahead a bit of the rest of our group while walking back toward Namche Bazaar. But my cough continued to progress along the way. Despite my best efforts to keep some pep in my step, by the time we got back into town to spend a third and final night at the Nirvana home, my energy was depleted. Heather, on the other hand, who had returned there with a lock a few days prior, was already on the mend in this lower elevation. One of our local guides went out and procured some very reasonably priced cough syrup for me while I rested on the bench in the tea house, though I would have gladly paid a triple tourist price for some tussin at that point. Attempting to recount and write down the day's events felt daunting, but I have vague memories of enjoying more momos for dinner with the group. Despite my FOMO tendencies, I gave in to my body and went to bed early. Day 15, May 13th, 2018. Namche Bazaar to Lukla, 13.1 miles hiking. Elevation, 9,383 feet. We said our goodbyes and snapped a few last photos of Concha in the sunny morning light on the porch of the Nirvana before hitting the dusty trail. We couldn't linger long as we had a full day of hiking ahead, which did help to temper the listlessness I was feeling about the impending end of this journey. At first, this stretch of trail was exciting to travel upon, as it had been enshrouded in clouds on our ascent. But by the afternoon, I found I was taking fewer photos and my mood had turned to mush. The only respite for my congested lungs was the mostly downhill grade and the promise of a hospital visit once back in Kathmandu. I was likely fighting off a fever too, as I had to muster all of my strength to stay sitting upright during dinner at the Himalaya Lodge in Lukla. It should have been celebratory, but I was spent. I tried to stay awake long enough to pass along my portion of a tip to our three porters in person, as I truly wanted to show my gratitude for their help along the way over the last 10 days. But I think I had to hand someone else my money and head to bed instead. I went to sleep coughing, but comforted that we only had to walk as far as across the street to get back to the airport in the morning. Days 16 through 18. May 14th through 17th, 2018. Lukla to Kathmandu. Day 16. Lukla. I woke up saddened to leave the mountains, but also so ready to go. Cough syrup and throat lozenges had propped me up for the last few days, but I needed some real rest and actual antibiotics. Thankfully, the skies cooperated, and we were cleared to leave the airport pretty much on time, and by actual plane this time. When it was our turn, we walked outside and watched a new crop of trekkers unload, just as excited about their journey ahead as we had been before. We took our seats quickly, taxied approximately 20 feet away to the airstrip, and with the nose of the plane already pointed downhill, we were off. It felt a lot like heading downhill on a roller coaster, except instead of staying attached to a track, we just dropped off the side of the mountain instead. Back in Kathmandu, William escorted me to the nearby hospital, a place I had been actually looking forward to visiting for the last few days. As expected, the prognosis was bronchitis. 
I returned to her hotel with medicine in hand and having only spent $15 for the whole ordeal. I slept the remainder of the day, ordered room service in, and slept some more. Shari, understandably, opted to bunk up with Caddy for the remainder of the trip, as my coughing had been keeping her up at night too. Sorry, Rumi. By late afternoon on day 17, I felt ready to rally and headed out with everyone for a posh dinner in the garden of a former palace. After spending so much time with this crew over the last few weeks, I was elated to be well enough to have this night together to reminisce and bring a bit of closure to the whole adventure. It isn't often that I leave myself a buffer around my vacations, but having built-in contingency days is essential for travel to and from Lukla. I had hoped to spend these last few days sightseeing, but was thankful at least that I hadn't had to hop right back onto a plane while feeling like poo. Day 18 was our last day in Nepal, and I wanted to make sure to take time to buy some trinkets and gifts for myself and my loved ones. While no one item could quite encapsulate the spirit of the last few weeks, I did get myself a very cute felted yak that still brings me joy to this day. In the afternoon, we traveled to the nearby city of Bhaktapur, specifically the neighborhood surrounding their Durbar Square, another UNESCO World Heritage Site that suffered extreme damage in the 2015 earthquakes. It was amazing to see so many people working in different ways to rebuild the whole region. Our last stop of the trip was one of the most meaningful. We spent a couple of hours volunteering at a nearby orphanage that William was connected with by way of Kids of Kathmandu, a New York City-based nonprofit that focuses on education and helps provide a positive path for marginalized children in Nepal. I'm not sure what I expected to be doing when I signed up to volunteer, but it turned out to be simply to have fun, run around, and play with some of the children whose schools and homes had been leveled with the earthquake. The beaming smiles and the outpouring of love from the kids melted my heart and my brain. I don't remember the rest of the night. I assume we just went down the street from our hotel for one last round of our favorite dinner, momos and beer, then straight back to pack up. The next morning, we were off to the airport for the long journey back home to the other side of the world. so much, dear listeners, for joining me on this trip down memory lane from my visit to Nepal five years ago. I'm honestly so proud of my younger self for taking the time to write down all the little things that I noticed along the way, and also that I went back in the weeks and months afterwards to fill in the details with the proper, if perhaps mispronounced, place names. I'm also completely in awe of myself that I had any energy to do so, especially considering my budding bronchitis. While I have a number of photos I can look at to remind me of the baby yaks in the snowy valley and what the surrounding mountains looked like in the sun, it's the descriptions of the day-to-day activities and my thoughts that truly transport me right back to that time, place, and mindset. I hope that your future adventures end up being more evergreen than ephemeral too, and that you choose to take a little time to document them in whatever way works for your brain, regardless of how tired your body may be. I hope that like me, the memories stick with you long after you've left, and that by taking the time to look back every once in a while, they help you to continue to learn about yourself and help pave the way for even more adventures ahead. Many thanks again to William Vasquez of Camera Voyages for stoking my Nepali adventure flames to begin with, 
and for doing all of the logistical work to get us to base camp and beyond. The journey would not have been as memorable without the companionship of my fellow base camp buddies and guides, Shari, Caddy, Danny, Abaya, Alok, Alex, and Heather. Thanks for making it fun, y'all. Want to see some photos from our trip? Just head over to girlgotahike.com. I also highly recommend watching a much more recent and lovely video of Concha Sherpa made by William. You can see that plus some other vignettes of Nepal on his YouTube channel. Links to both are in the show notes. As are links to the Concha Sherpa Foundation, the Nirvana Home, the Himalayan Rescue Association, and Kids of Kathmandu. I truly appreciate that you have taken the time to lend your ears this way. If this or any other episode has helped inspire you to get out and explore, then please travel over to Apple Podcast and leave us an awesome comment. Good reviews help spread the word about Girl Gotta Hike and help me to help others head out for adventure. Girl Gotta Hike connects women with nature, confidence, and camaraderie through guided hikes and backpacking trips from New York City to the Catskills and beyond. Looking to head out on a custom-crafted trip of your own? Then be sure to click on the Hire a Private Guide tab over at girlgottahike.com to let me know what kind of adventure you're aiming to take. Custom trips are open to all and are perfect for those wanting to celebrate milestones, have a family adventure, or check off those bucket list hikes like the Devil's Path, Catskill 3500 Peaks, or sections of the Appalachian Trail. Seeking out some hiking besties? Then click on the event schedule and sign up for a group hike instead. You can head to trail without having a car on the monthly public transit series hikes, or go further afield with your new hiking friends on group hikes in the Hudson Valley and the Catskills. While there, you can also check out some handy blog posts and sign up for my monthly-ish newsletter. You can also follow me on Instagram at Girl Gotta Hike or on the Girl Gotta Hike Facebook page. Until next time, happy hiking! There goes Roman, we sigh, and then giggle like the total fangirls we have become.